Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. This is the number one daily radio show for realtors looking for a no BS, authentic, real-time coaching experience. What's really working in today's market, how to generate more leads, make more money, and have more time for what you love in your life. And now your hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Three, two, one, and we're back. And as promised, we have finally gotten, we are finally ready to present why there will not be a housing crash. And the title of today's podcast is, of course, Housing Crash Coming Soon. And if those of you who are not going to be listening to us for the whole half hour, the answer is no. You can get back to Twittering or see you later or or whatever (laughs) you were doing before. But for the rest of you, and for a majority of you, the tens of thousands of you who are listening to us now internationally, um, we are going to lay out the exact reasons and we're going to present this content to you in such a way that you then can present the same information to your uh, real estate customers. And if you're at a broker or an office manager, or, or maybe if you're a content seat, a syndicator or whatnot, and you're looking for this type of information, please do use it, but please do credit it back to what Julie and I, um, that as Julie and I is the source, because we've been working on this for a long time and our content is copywritten. So no cutting and pasting and the rest of it. But for a majority of you who are real estate practitioners, this information is designed to, um, instill confidence in your own business with regards to knowing that there is no crash on the near horizon, at least in our opinion, and we're going to give you the reasons why we think this way. But uh, the moan, the main motivation for us doing this for all of you was so that you then could have the tools to present to your prospective clients in case they start getting uh, a little bit janky as well. So we're going to go through these point by point, and Julie um, has spent a lot of time with the facts and figures because you guys like those types of, well, most of you like that type of information. Um, and then we're going to post this the um, notes for today's podcast on timandjulieharris.com. Whether it makes it over to iTunes and Stitcher and all you know, um, all the other places the show is syndicated, I'm not sure. But it's always all of our uh, long form notes are always living over on timandjulieharris.com. So Julie, um, overall, when you are creating these notes, and let's get to point number one here in a second. Mm-hmm. But overall, when you were going through all this, what was your like? What were you learning? What was what was it? Did you approach this thinking that you were going to find reasons to believe the market was going to crash? Or did you approach this? What, did you have any biases when you were well, seeking this information? I tried information? not to have biases. Right. I tried actually to seek out reasons that perhaps it might crash. Right. Because, you know, by and large, the overall evidence is that that's not the way it's going to go. And I always like to see, well, you know, if we were wrong about that, why would that be? And so that was my motivation. And and also what you said, so that they can talk with their clients and prospects. And also so that all of our brokers and agents can sleep well at night, not living in fear of something like that. And I think it comes in two forms. One is people who did live through it and perhaps did sell during those times saw a lot of crazy stuff, right? And it was a very dramatic, um, oftentimes depressing kind of market. And then you have another bunch, really a whole generation of agents and brokers who live in fear of the unknown because they didn't deal with it. So that's a lot of fear. There's an interim group anxiety. too. There's yeah. people that basically live through the crash but never completely have gotten over it. Yes. And they're still they've been holding themselves back for now over a decade, mm-hmm. anticipating another crash. So they've not really fully committed to any aspect of their not lives. Not fully engaged. But they're yeah. not fully engaged because they're thinking to themselves mm-hmm. subconsciously, perhaps, that you know what, I'm not gonna double down on my real estate business because I did that before back in 06, 07 and whatever, and I, you know, suffered these pains as a result. So I'm in real estate, but I'm not in real estate as much as I could be. 
you know, fully engaged. So we're going to go through these points, and I want you to listen to this information as an open mind, with an open mind. And Julie and I do constantly look for both sides of any argument because that's going to be the best. We don't want to be caught in any sort of confirmation bias either. It's inevitable, right? But here's the thing you got to keep in mind, and this is the thing that I think um, when you when you understand what I'm about to say is true, you're actually going to feel a lot more confident. The market, where regardless of what direction it's going to go, is it doesn't really matter. Ultimately, it doesn't matter for the sake of uh, you helping people make money. Because if the market starts to adjust towards being a you know maybe a buyer's market, let's say it's going to be a relatively quick transition. But if that were to happen, you'd be able to make money then. If the market were to be worst case scenario, right? There's some sort of alien invasion and the housing market, and the economy crashes, some sort of black swan event of all black swan events. Well, if that were to happen, guess what? <laughs> you guys can make money then too. Mm-hmm. You're just going to have to adjust your approach, adjust your skill set and you're just going to frankly have to be a little bit more versatile in um, your mindset with regards to being of service to people it might be right now you're being of service to people that are in a you know a, a specific financial demographic or financial situation and maybe that's where your niche is and you feel very comfortable but all of a sudden that can be washed out from underneath you and then you're going to have to quickly pivot and you're going to have to then be able to adjust to whatever the market has to offer and that's really the main thing i want you to remember you have a real estate license you make money whether the property's values are going up or the property values are going down you still make a percent of the sale no matter what direction the market's going and you can't say well a seller's market is better for the market or a buyer's market is better for the overall market. There's attributes and detriments of both markets, but I need you to understand, it's critical that you understand, you can be successful no matter what direction the market is headed. And what we're going to present to you right now is the reason that we believe that there's going to be no sea change in the market. And I mean this on a national scale, perhaps even an international scale. And we're going to go through all the points point by point. Now we are, uh, you know, our, uh, uh, crystal ball, right? Yes. Doesn't go any forward. It doesn't go any farther into the future than maybe three to five years. I would agree. And and really, if we go beyond maybe even 24 months, then we're really throwing spitballs and just guessing. Uh, But we do feel comfortable that we're going to be in this cycle for the next three to five years. So without any further delay, uh, Julie Harris, let's just jump right in. That's right. uh, But let's... I know what you're about to say. It's okay. So here's your here's your disclaimer. Lots of specific detail, lots of facts and figures. Julie's going to be reading you things that she found online, and these are in the form of bullet points. And again, we're pre- uh, uh, presenting in this manner so that you then can be informed and we can kind of skip through the fluffery. Yes. And just so you know how these podcasts are going to be laid out, this is a multi-part podcast series specifically about why we're not likely to end in a bust to the perceived boom here. Okay, so we're going to take one topic per day because there's a lot to this. There's not just one reason that we've researched. So today's topic du jour is all about lending. So let's let's kind of tee this up. Everyone is wondering if this is a boom that will end in a bust. Is this huge run up in prices going to result in a massive adjustment? Well, it is a logical question considering home prices are up a staggering 17.2% year over year if you're comparing March 2020 to March 2021. That's an NAR stat. And that's on national level too. Yes. I hope you guys understood what Julie just said. The home prices in the United States, and by the way, have never gone up that much ever, not ever. even during the housing boom. <laughs> so they've gone up by over 17%. In, the la- in, in 12 months alone. And every, I don't know if you, uh, 
I know I suspect you covered this, but everyone who was doing predictions in fourth quarter last year into the first quarter of this year about what the market was going to do, all of them were wrong. They all thought the market was going to level off and the appreciation was going to be, or inflation was going to be less than 6%. Every single prognosticator was incorrect. The homes are uh, continuing to inflate in value or appreciate in value at a similar clip than they did that they did last year. We're seeing something that's never happened before. That's right. And again, his, these uh, rises in prices are historically even higher than the boom that preceded the housing crisis back in 2008. Now, Morgan Stanley reports home prices, as measured by the S&P Case-Shiller Index, rose 12.2% over the last year, with prices surging across all 20 of the metropolitan areas that tracks by, that is tracked by the index. Now, how does that translate into something real? Well, it amounts to an increase of $35,000 in the median selling price for homes from just a year ago and marks the fastest pace of increase since 2006. No, okay, so not fastest pace increase. Well, yes, frankly, the fastest pace increase of home appreciation or inflation. But what Julie just said is the average American homeowner has had their net worth increased by $35,000. So far. So far, right. Remember, just so it's only, you know, these were based on through March and now, you know, we're in May. So went, it's even more than that. So, but, so think about that. Yeah. The average sale price in the United States, our average home value in the United States now is three hundred fifty grand. Mm -hmm. So the average homeowner in the United States has already basically had their home increase in value by thirty five grand so far this 10%. year. Now, here's the thing that's really, again, mm -hmm. we can go through... You know, monetary supply and get totally ahead of our skis and you know act like well, we know what we're talking practical we're going to keep it practical yeah. so here's the th amazing thing that's happening if you own a home right now and this is the reason that it's okay to uh you know essentially sort of ignore past sales and just you know price things towards where the market's going to be because if you own a, own a home right now and you're locking in one of these really amazingly low 30-year fixed rate mortgages the increase in value through inflation or uh, appreciation whichever word you choose to use is going to more than cover the cost of owning the home. So someone's going to be a, your you compared to the payment is what you're saying. Right. So if you buy a $350,000 house and I don't know what the payment is, but let's say it's $2,000 a month and let's say with maintenance and upkeep and Mickey Mouse it's $3,000 a month. You have to put a roof on it or I don't know what. You guys get the point here. The house so far this year has already basically increased paid for itself. Paid for itself for the entire year. So this yeah. this type of thing makes home owning uh, owning a home it, it's always been one of the best wealth creation vehicles for Americans but oh my gosh I know <laughs> it's amazing so we'll take a look at the reasons that this market is not going to be just like 2007 and 8 we're doing this again for your own education as well as so you have specific talking points for your nervous buyers now here's a fact here's a little coaching morsel an objection is an unanswered question in the mind of the prospect the unanswered question you're hearing now or even asking yourself is, is the market going to adjust, crash, decline anytime soon? So take good notes, get ready to sleep better at night, knowing the facts versus conjecture and speculation. Okay, so let's get to the nitty gritty. Reason number one, and that's what this whole podcast is going to be about. Mortgage lending is completely different than it was in the previous housing boom. There is far less mortgage risk now than there was in the previous boom. The subprime mortgage crisis was a leading factor in the housing crash. Not so today. Let's take a moment to compare and contrast because it really is amazingly different. Are we going to be talking about the uh, forbearances coming <laughs> yes. to an end? Okay, good. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a good job on these notes, lady. Thank you. 
I appreciate that. Okay, so let's see. In 2005 to 2007, an average of 40% of mortgages were considered subprime. Now, we have a lot of listeners that don't know what that means, so we're going to get into that in a second. But these were loans which were used when people applying did not really fit into the conventional loan mold that you're all used to having to comply with today. Almost all of those applications would be declined in today's mortgage environment. So some examples, this is a little education piece, some examples of subprime loans. Remember, back then, 40% of the loans were like that. Today, it's only 2%. So there's a big reason why things are not going to hit the fan. But ex- so, yeah. Jules, you went over that too fast. Sorry. So back in the crash, um, 40% of all well, the, loans- The boom before the crash. 40%. Right, right. The yeah. boom before the crash, right. People were getting mortgages. And by the way, people were getting mortgages not knowing that there were subprime mortgages. A lot of the lenders were putting people in subprime mortgages because they paid more, paid them more con- uh, commission, even though they could have qualified for uh, conventional. So long story short is 40% of all new mortgages were subprime. So uh, maybe some of those could have qualified for conventional mortgages, but a lot of them couldn't. And so with subprime, the details on how to go about getting a subprime mortgage back then will astound you. Yes. So we're going to get into this. And I I know that there's going to be listeners going, huh? Yeah. You could do that, (laughs) right? And as did we then. Okay. So examples of subprime loans, interest only. That means you're never paying down the principal. You're only paying the interest. There was something called a ninja loan, which stood for no income, job, or assets. Try and get that to fly today. Well, they didn't actually call it ninja. That's what the industry Uh, called it. The mortgage people sometimes did. It was a a nickname. It was a slang term, really. Yes, exactly. Okay, stated income loans, and the slang term for that was liar loans. But, you you know, you you could just say what you made. And in other words, there was no employment verification. No documentation loans or no doc loans where you didn't actually have to paper it up like you do now, proving everything with every pay stub. And then a lot of zero to five percent down payment mortgages, meaning you were walking into that house with no equity. Okay. And, you know, houses, prices were rising, but not forever. So here's another fun fact. Credit scores, debt to income ratios, job history, and down payment verification were all, shall we say, anywhere from optional to less important to simply made up or just not asked for in the first place. And that's the thing that folks nowadays uh, don't understand. Back in, frankly, back in the run up to the bust, it was incredibly easy to get a mortgage. Like it, it and was pretty quickly too. There was even, no sixty day. You know, you yeah, can close fast. People didn't even think about it. I mean, you yeah. and I were living um, in Las Vegas at the time, mm-hmm. and this was pre Z, pre Zoe, right? Yes. The, and I remember y- you and I were parking. Uh, we were going to see Jerry Seinfeld or something. We were parking our car, and uh, you know, we we're talking to the valet. And long story short, he was giving us real estate advice, and he said he already owned five houses or something. Yeah. The dude was a valet. Now, valets in Vegas make oftentimes you'd be shocked, but over a hundred grand per year, but five houses. And so I remember Julie and I thinking to ourselves, "Well, that doesn't sound quite right." No, <laughs> something is going on here. Also, appraisals were not so regulated. Everything appraised all the time until it didn't. You know, you didn't have these, these appraisal fights that you do today. Okay, it's the risk factor that caused the bubble to burst eventually. It was unsustainable risk. Well, so basically, just long story short, we can round the bend on looking at history. What was happening is all these subprime mortgage companies, and the first one that uh, failed was actually in Southern California. I think it was called New Century. I think it was, yeah. And when essentially these these subprime lenders were uh, taking all these loans and the premise back in the day was that there's never been a nationwide housing crash or even correction. And there's never been a time when housing values had gone down more than a certain percent. 
Um, and there were people that were physically in, uh, you know, in altercations arguing that there's no way there's going to be a housing crash. I'll tell you guys a really quick funny story. Julie and I were, you, yeah, well, we were in a, a uh, we were waiting in line to mail a bunch of Christmas presents when we were at the post office in Laguna Beach, California. Uh-huh. And uh, there were two older gentlemen. There's a long line. There's these two older guys that are, you know, and they were we loud and you could hear what they were talking about. They were both old time Laguna residents and they were literally arguing. One was saying there's never going to be a crash. Laguna Beach prices will never drop. And the other is saying this is going to happen, you know, and guess what? They were starting to get really almost uh, a gr- like I'm they're pushing each sure. other basically yeah. over that. And, you know, the thing is, is that the guy that was saying there was going to be a housing correction was correct. And yeah. the other guy was wrong. But that's how I dug I in. To, yeah, and I remember we went to an open house there. And just for fun, because that's what we do, right? And, you know, the agent was yelling at us as we walked in the steps. Are you going to buy it or something like that? And we're like, no, not for us. And, and remember what she said? No, this is after. The, You're telling The next time you see it, it'll be a million dollars. And it was an $800,000 house. She believed that, you know, it would keep on cycling up right. and up. And people just so whole, wholeheartedly believed in it. So uh, I wanted to do a little summary from Morgan Stanley because we need to make sure they understand this. Well, just to finish the point, sure, though, sure. the reason that people – so all these loans were getting originated, and the lenders were able to actually get these loans effectively insured by the, the government. And so the government was uh, – the, these lenders were packaging these loans, and they were essentially – they weren't keeping them. They were selling them off. And that's the easiest this way of explaining it. This is the whole mortgage-backed security thing. There's been a lot of really interesting movies that have uh, been uh, written about this, and actually one of our neighbors, Peter Schiff, uh, was one of the uh, first people to predict that there was going to be a housing crash and you know i've talked to him about it before and i'm asking him what he's predicting now is going to be the next big crash and guess what he told me cryptocurrency do with that as you will right. but in any event the moral of the story here is that this is a very well uh, t- it very well researched historical time in the u.s economy and if you're wonkish at all you should go back and study it because the things that led up to the crash um, were all uh, aggressively studied and then every single one of the things that were was was enabled to happen. And in essence, these loans, the type of lending, the type of sort of uh, culture in the mortgage industry was all addressed. And they essentially, the new when the new mortgage regulations came out and how the banks reacted with their own overlays on the mortgages, oh, yeah. there, there is zero chance that anyone with any sort of, even a remote bit, a remote tinge of flakiness in their mortgage application is going to get a loan approved. Not and now. it's been this way for a long time. It has, but it's important that these guys understand that a lot of the stuff they deal with today is a result of what we're talking about now. Right. And it's really good for you as real estate professionals to have this histor- history in your brains. So I'm going to summarize this little piece, and then we're going to talk about specifically what's different today. So Morgan Stanley summarized it by saying these products, meaning these funky loans, were inherently risky because they required home prices to keep rising and lending standards to remain accommodative so that the borrowers could refinance their monthly payment uh, before it became unaffordable. However, when home prices stopped climbing, these mortgages reset to payments that borrowers could not make leading to delinquency and foreclosure because they could not then refinance out of it. As foreclosures and subsequent distressed sales piled up, home prices fell further, creating the vicious cycle. So that's kind of the conclusion of what what was happening. Then we'll talk about how it's different. But what happened? So the vicious cycle was this. People no longer believed the house prices could uh, only go in one direction. That would, so there was psychology that changed. 
And there was other things that changed after that as well. So once people realized that uh, they have no equity in their properties, once people realized that they could uh, move out of their house and rent the house three doors down and their actual monthly payment was going to be less than what they're now paying on their adjusted mortgage, which they can barely afford, people would move to the new house. Sometimes they do what's called buy and bail. Mm -hmm. They'd buy a new house that was a lower payment that already had a reduced market price because of the fact that the prices had dropped. And they would then allow their old mortgage to go into default. There were all kinds of things that were happening. But the real important thing is what happened uh, to um, the perception. Like when Julie and I were growing up and a lot of you guys were growing up, there were certain things that you never actually did unless you wanted to basically have the sort of Damocles hanging over you socially for life. And one of them was a foreclosure. So if you had a foreclosure or something like that happened, that was a major social no-no. It was bad. Nowadays, as a result of the housing crash, if someone has a foreclosure, it doesn't even really people it's nothing and and they had so the whole mindset and culture about mortgages and housing completely changed as a result of the housing crash as equity disappeared right and it, not only disappeared but people became upside down meaning they owe more than the house was worth and furthermore the manner in which the government reacted afterwards uh, it also completely changed people's sense of, of responsibility to paying their mortgage obligations because there there are people there are people to this day that are still in their houses uh, on essentially long, long-term mortgage workouts of some variety that are still underwater or maybe just now have enough equity as a result of the housing crash. We knew people that were in their homes for five, six years making no payment because of the fact that you know there was various government programs that would come out that would stop foreclosures and all the rest of it. So before the housing crash, there were no programs like that. In California, for example, I believe the law was the notice of default had to be filed within 60 days of the first missed payment. Well, it doesn't happen that way anymore. And so all the so people's perceptions about mortgages, frankly, perceptions about paying their mortgages in the event that they can't make their payment, all of that changed. And the reason, and that's one of the reasons that the lenders started, and what Julie's about to share up. with you, tightening up. So there's the lending standards that the government puts in place for most, you know, government-approved Fannie Freddie type loans, you know, conforming loans. And then there's what the banks call overlays. So the overlay is just as it sounds. It's another set of rules and regulations that your individual lender is going to put on top of the loans. Moral of the story here is what Julie's about to read to you as far as stats is the complete opposite of how things were. Going back to our original premise that when it comes to reasons to believe that there's not a housing crash looming, reason number one is because lending has never been so tight. That's right. In other words, there is no underlying systemic mortgage issue that would push things to be a bust. Okay. So I wrote, what's different today? Well, things aren't just a little bit different in the mortgage world. They are dramatically different, as Tim just said, with the pendulum swinging way the other direction. Some of you guys have wondered, why are lenders so strict? Well, we're going to, we just told you, this is the reaction to it. So point number one, what's different today? 36% of home sales are all cash. That's huge. This is according to CNBC. I like to give credit where my stats come from. Yes, ma'am. Okay. In many markets, especially in the Northeast, more than 50% of sales are all cash. You guys know this because you've had to compete with all cash with your finance buyers. Note, there's no lender to foreclose on a house with no mortgage. So that by itself is a huge point why that's not going to go anywhere. By the way, for those of you who have yet to finish your 2021, 2022, 2023 business plans, uh, your fill-in-the-blank business plan is waiting for you. It's called the Real Estate Treasure Map. And this is something we give to all of our listeners for free. It's our way of saying thank you for being a loyal podcast listener and continuing to make this the number one listen to daily podcast for real estate professionals in the world. So text 2021 to 47372. Text 2021 to 47372. 
You can do it right now while you're listening before Julie gets to point number two. Just text 2021 to 47372. Nothing's going to happen to the podcast. It's going to keep on playing. You can keep on listening. Hop on. Just click your little SMS tab on your phone and just text 2021 to 47372. When you do, we're going to text you a link and you're going to click that link and then you're going to be able to download the real estate treasure map, Think and Grow Rich for Real Estate, and a lot of the great books that are really going to give you a fantastic sense of direction for the rest of the year in your real estate business. So while you're thinking about it, go ahead and text 2021 to 47372. Okay, so what's different today? Point number two, lenders have tough standards today. Average credit scores for third and fourth quarter of 2020 were a record high of 786, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. 786. Now, that I can tell you for sure was not happening in the previous boom. You know, well, they had loans. they wouldn't have those funky loans, right? A lot of people that had not great credit were still getting mortgages. That's right. And so that's one of the things that if you had bad credit, you would go to a subprime lender. And one of their criteria was their, you know, they basically didn't give a rat's butt what your credit score was. And they were giving loans uh, sometimes um, for people with credit scores like 600 and lower. Yes. And so, you know, that and here's the funny thing is the subprime market originally evolved to just basically serve subprime borrowers. But as I said uh, earlier, what happened to a lot of these uh, lenders and these loan officers, they were sticking a, you know, a grade buyer or borrowers into subprime loans so they could make more uh, commission. And then they would also say, well, guess what? Now, if you go to this lender B, you can, uh, it's a, you know, a, a loan where you only have to pay the interest for the first seven years and your payment's going to be lower. You weren't going to stay in your house seven years anyway. So what difference does it make? We'll get you qualified this way. Exactly. You know? Yeah, so not so today. Those borrowers going to get a mortgage today are going to most likely get declined because the product's not even out there. All right, so reason number three, the competitiveness of the market has also caused higher down payments, yet the actual monthly payments are not dramatically affected thanks to low interest rates. Also a difference. So this means that you automatically have more equity in your home when you close in 2021 than the equivalent in 2006, or you might have purchased with low or no money down. So this is a good time to interject in there. There's a record amount of home equity. Um, there's never been this much as a percent of outstanding mortgage or as a percent of mortgage values. There's never, did you get the stat? It's over a trillion dollars in a home equity. So people right now, you, <laughs> listeners with homes, are sitting on a record amount of equity. I mean, Julie just told you the average home in the United States has already increased in uh, cost by $35,000 this first quarter this mm -hmm. year. So there's some nice free money for you. You're living in a house where the house is paying for itself. That's a nice thing, right? Um, but the moral of the story is, is that people with tons and tons of equity don't default. Well, that's generally right. speaking. And, well, but look at it this way. Even if they were in a situation, let's say that they came off of a forbearance, they haven't gotten their job equivalency back yet, whatever, they've got health problems, they're not going to make the mortgage payment, okay? And they don't qualify for a loan mod. Let's say they miss a few payments. The point you made about equity makes a difference, right? Because just because somebody misses payments does not equal a, a short sale or a foreclosure because they can sell the house today, pay off the forbearance, pay off what, you know, their past payments and still walk away with cash. Yeah. And that's the thing. You guys got to be clear about that. That's a, that's a really big deal. So worst case scenario, Julie just said it, someone can't make their payment, but they're sitting on equity. They could price the house to market and it's going to sell in 22 seconds. They price the house under market, it's going to sell, right? Uh, going back in time in 22 seconds. So that's the thing that's, that was not the case. Back when the housing market started to crash, there weren't buyers for the houses. So the prices kept 
dropping. It was a supply and demand issue, basically. And all buyers, you know, the saying was, I don't want to catch a falling knife. That's not the case now. And it's not going to be the case for a long period of time. There are buyers upon buyers upon buyers stacked up to purchase houses in virtually every price range in every market in the United States and also a lot of the other markets in which we have coaching clients. Exactly. So point number four, and this is one that's been kind of ruminated in the press. There's been some videos about it. Forbearances. Well, what's going to happen to all these people coming off of forbearance? Well, we just discussed that a little bit. They have enough equity that even worst case scenario, they're probably going to sell the house and cash out. But there was also st stats we got from Rick Sharga where he was basically, oh, What's am there? I jumping no in your worry. notes? Okay, no sorry. Worry. Okay, so <laughs> forbearances staved off potential foreclosures during the Black Swan event, another thing people throw around, known as the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic. And no, there isn't an avalanche of post-forbearance foreclosures on the horizon. Forbearances are being extended. Loan modifications and other solutions are the norm now, not the exception. So from CoreLogic, this came from the end of uh, March of this year, recent announcements of forbearance extension by the Federal Housing Finance Agency, known as FHFA, came on the heels of millions of forbearance plans that are about to expire at the end of March under the CARES Act. The new extensions allow additional six months stay of forbearance, making borrowers eligible for a total of 18 months of temporary payment relief. Well, guess what? There was nothing that even remotely looked like that in 2006, seven or eight. It, unheard of. They wouldn't do workouts like that. Well, there's, there's no impetus for, you know, anybody wanting it to hit the fan. So there were in 2008, because that's when well, there they were start, modifications. There are modifications, right? But there wasn't 18 months of forbearance. No, A no. modification was usually 90 days to six months. Yep. And had a lot of rules and stipulations to it. Okay. So, uh, and I'll go, I'm going to go down to a quote from. Okay. Uh, okay. But number five, foreclosure activity is very limited. Bankrate.com says in the years after the housing crash, millions of foreclosures flooded the housing market, depressing prices. That's not the case now. Most homeowners have a comfortable equity cushion in their homes. Lenders haven't been filing default notices during the pandemic, pushing foreclosures to record lows in 2020. And here's a uh, quote from Rick Sharga, uh, executive vice president with Realty Track, also a friend of ours. Uh, market conditions are nothing like they were during the last recession. And Rick studies this thing probably more than anybody we know, right? So he said, there are reasons to be cautiously optimistic despite massive unemployment levels and uncertainty about government policies under the new administration. But while anything is possible, it's highly unlikely that we'll see another foreclosure, tsunami, or housing market crash. And Realty Track, by the way, sells uh, default. That's one of their products is they sell default notice information too. So he would know. So he would know, right? <laughs> right. But guys, there it is. Now we're going to, what's the next major topic and why there will not be a housing crash? I think we're going to do demographics on Monday. Okay, cool. That's a good topic. All right. And also really factual stuff. And again, these notes are going to be posted on timandjulieharris.com. So pop over there and check them out. In the meantime, hopefully you're all feeling optimistic that you are in the right place at the right time in the right industry. So good job past you, right? <laughs> now, the next thing you want to consider doing is moving forward with Julie and I at eXp Realty. We'd love to talk with you about you joining Julie and I's eXp group. Now, we just put up a new website you can check out. It's called whylibertas.com, whylibertas, L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S.com. Um, and you can check out the, the website. And that's the reason why so many agents are choosing to join with Julie and I with um, Libertas, which is our revenue share group at eXp Realty. But if you'd like to talk with me directly, if you want to talk about moving forward with your, um, you know, 
brokerage selection and to something that's actually going to help you weather whatever storm clouds might be on the distant horizon, please do consider eXp Realty and please do consider um, having Julie and I as your sponsor. You can text me directly at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. In the meantime, you guys have a fantastic day and we'll talk with you on the show tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.